How many of you guys are familiar with with, uh, virtual reality? Have you ever used the goggles for virtual reality? I have not, but I understand it is like super cool. You've probably seen like advertisements or something like that. But virtual reality with those goggles, basically uh, it it conforms the image that you're seeing to your body movement. So turning and moving and such, moving your hands and legs, that you are able to see different uh, scenes as you're turning around. Um, and it acts kind of as a way to blind you from reality, but it also provides you with an alternate reality. Now, follow my illustration here, because the world in our day, the world is as if they are wearing those VR goggles, virtual reality goggles. It blinds them to reality and it provides them with an alternate reality. They truly see life in a very different way than what we read about in the scripture so that it's easy for them to come to the conclusion man is basically good. Man is not a slave to sin. Man is able to overcome their sin. But they, if, if sin is even an issue, they also would say that there does not need to be a God. Some of them don't believe there's a God, but some of them just simply say that there, that there doesn't need to be a God. Consequently, they're, they're, that he is okay with whatever is wrong in me. We, we recognize, most people recognize that they do the wrong things, that they hurt people. They may not call them wrong. It's up to them. Um, but they would say that they would, that they're okay, that their goodness is okay before God. And God therefore accepts them as they are in their sin and that there is therefore no need for my personal salvation. That's basically the VR goggles that the world wears. Now, I just want to let us help us understand that Paul also tells us that the Jews, whenever they pick up the Old Testament, that they're wearing those very same goggles, that they are, that those goggles provide that alternate reality and it blinds them to what is in the scriptures so that They cannot see Jesus as the Messiah. They cannot see Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. Now, they are are completely aware of this need for sacrifice for sins, even though those sacrifices have been done away with. But when they pick up the New Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, and I would even say, of course, the New Testament, they don't, it doesn't click for them. When you ask them, well, what about Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is a very powerful passage. It it, it talks about the suffering servant. In Isaiah, in the last several chapters, there's actually four what they call servant songs that we find there. There's one found in Isaiah 42, another we're going to look at tonight in Isaiah 49, another few, another few verses found in chapter 50, and of course, 53. It actually includes a few verses from the very end of chapter 52. But they would call these the, the servant songs. And when they look at Isaiah 53, they interpret the servant as Israel. 
And in order to do that, they have to look at some alternative readings for Isaiah. But they have to do a lot more than that as well. Because Israel then would have to be crushed for our iniquities. The servant becomes a guilt offering to God for the peoples. Now, when we look at Isaiah 49, we're going to see this same servant. And it actually tells us that it's Israel. But let me ask you, is Israel a person or is Israel a nation? Now, we would, we would step back, and those of you who have read your Bibles with it, well, actually, it's both. I'm going to suggest to you that when we read this, though it gives the, it gives the backdrop of a the person Israel or a nation, it is far more than that. And I actually want to spend several weeks, not just going through Isaiah 49, but between now and Christmas, I want us to look at this idea of the mission of the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah. And we're going to look a lot at just one of those servant songs and a little bit of the others. I mean, Isaiah 53, I've already preached on that. Actually, I've, I've preached from it a number of times, so I'm going to choose not to do that. But that is an absolutely powerful passage of Scripture. If you have never read it before, it was written 700 years before Jesus Christ. And when you read it, it screams the very purpose and mission that Jesus accomplished here on earth. And the Gospels quote from it many times, including the book of Acts, many times. If you were to read, not present-day rabbi scholars, but rabbi scholars from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they would take issue with the present-day Jewish understanding that Isaiah 53 is referring to Israel the nation. Just so you know, it's not like, an, it's, it's not like a completely new interpretation, but during the time of Jesus, they just, very few if any, saw Isaiah 53 referring, that servant referring to the nation of Israel. It might refer to the prophet, they would say, but most of them recognized it as the suffering servant, the promised Messiah that would be coming. Some of them believed in two different messiahs. I'm not going to get into that. But this understanding that Israel or, or that the servant is Israel is a very common misunderstanding, as if they're wearing those VR goggles. Now, here's why I'm going there. It's because when we read through some of this, it shows us in, the, in Old Testament language such a clear vision and understanding of what the Messiah was going to accomplish. And we're just going to look at a few very simple concepts this morning. So follow me. I'm going to go ahead and start reading here from Isaiah 49. Oops. There we go. Isaiah 49, starting with verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. So understand that already it's not Israel that's the primary focus here, is it? It's the distant nations. And in order for the distant nations to know what their destiny is, you're gonna, we're, as we're going to read, he's going to take them from his, the servant's call to Israel, but it's going to go beyond that. Okay? So let's just understand from the get-go, Whatever we read, it's directed to the nations, okay? 
Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. What is due me is in the Lord's hand. And my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring those of Israel back excuse me, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. <coughs> As we read through this, we have to ask the question, who is me? Who is me? Who is I? He says right there in verse one, before I was born, who is I? And I think you, it would be very clear that he is saying, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Who is I? It's Israel. But let, me, let me just read to you from Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9. This is a prophecy that refers to the future. I, Jer, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. I assure you, Jeremiah was written hundreds of years after David. Then why is he using David's name here? Is David supposed to be reincarnated? Is he somehow supposed to be raised from the dead and come back to life? And they're going to no. he is obviously referring to the Messiah, but he's calling him David. Why? Because David is the consummate king that the Messiah will be. And all nations will eventually bow down to him. Now, especially with Israel, but all nations will bow down to him. David, your king. He's calling the Messiah David. In other places in Isaiah, he's, he's referred to as the root of Jesse or the branch. But the idea is that David was the consummate king. Israel was the consummate chosen one of the Lord. Of all the nations throughout the world, God chose one to give his laws to, to call them to be his people. Even so, the Messiah would be the consummate chosen one of God with a mission. Israel's mission 
was to live before God in such a way as to make the laws of God attractive and thereby causing nations to come into the light, to come to worship the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. But that didn't happen. Very few Gentiles came into the faith. Perhaps the biggest, and by far I would even say the biggest, was when Jonah went to Nineveh and 120,000 of them repented. I do believe, according to what Jesus said, that that was true repentance. Regardless, the goal was for Israel, kind of as a display to the world of this relationship with God, by walking according to the truth, by walking according to the law, and being obedient to be that light and call them to the Lord. This is a this is the picture then of the Messiah. And that's why he's nicknaming him Israel. Now we know that he's not really talking about the nation of Israel because as you look further down, one of his missions is to bring Israel back to the Lord. Why would it be Israel's purpose to bring Israel back to the Lord? See, that doesn't make any sense. And if you skip down and you look at verse 7, it says, referring to this suffering servant, to him, the servant, who was despised and abhorred by the nation. Did Israel abhor Israel? So obviously, though, though he is giving him the name Israel, you are my servant Israel, that is then an a nickname, if you will, even as David is a nickname for the Messiah, Israel is now a nickname for the Messiah as well. But he says here, you're my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Do you know how Jesus displayed the splendor of God? In John 2.11, it says that it's right after the turning the, the water into wine. He says this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. One way in which Jesus revealed the glory and the splendor and the majesty of God himself, of the Father, which, by the way, in no way is trying to communicate that Jesus was not God, but simply that he's, as he's revealing in, earthly, in his earthly ministry the glory and the splendor of God was through miracles. Now, it also says in John, later in John, in John 12, it talks about Jesus is basically saying, now it is time for me to be glorified. And he, he's... he's talking to the Father. Now it's time for you, for you to glorify your Son. And he gives an illustration of a seed falling into the ground. And he says, unless the seed dies, it can't produce more seeds. In essence, unless the seed dies, it can't live. And Jesus is referring to the cross and the resurrection together, the cross and the resurrection. And just a few verses later, he says, even I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And he said this referring to his death. So when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he's going to draw all men to himself, all kinds of people, not every single person, but he's saying all kinds of people, not just Jews, but Gentiles throughout the world to the ends of the earth, calling them, drawing them to himself. 
And in this way, through his miracles, and then through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus, the Messiah, is dis- has displayed the glory and the splendor of God. But he says, I have labored to no purpose. In John 1.11, it says he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus' very mission, his initial mission, number one focus in his earthly mission was to reach the lost sheep of Israel. And there was so much stubbornness there. There was so much resistance. He came to his own, but his own rejected him. And so Jesus, in essence lived his life, served in his ministry, and it seemed as if it came to nothing. After all, church, what happened at the end? He died on a cross. The people of Israel, when they had an opportunity, said, crucify him. What? And so the suffering servant is saying, but I said, I have labored to no purpose. The purpose was frustrated. It was not... Uh, destroyed. It was not defeated. So Jesus basically is saying, or, or the, the God is saying about this suffering servant, he's saying he, it's, it's going to seem as if his mission has failed. But what is his mission? What is his mission? His mission His goal, it says right there in verse 5, it's to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. And it says later in verse 6, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. In other words, I'm not just calling you to be a servant to bring Israel back, but I've got another, an additional plan, if you will. Jesus in John 10 says, I have another flock. And he's referring to the Gentiles. But here, his goal was to restore the tribes of Jacob. This is God's eternal plan. From the very beginning of time, God had a plan. He knew that he was going to call a people to himself, a nation of Israel, and they would have the laws of God, and they would not be able to do them. There would be constant frustration. And the result is that God would eventually reject them. Romans 11 says they would be grafted out of the vine. For what purpose? Why did God even do this? To show the world that as awesome and amazing as the the, the laws of God are, the call to be holy... People just could not do it. And for that reason, then, he sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and the church is birthed, and they're empowered by the Spirit to walk in the Spirit and produce the fruits of the Spirit. And so from the very beginning, God had this all planned out, all of it planned out. The Messiah's mission, when he would come, would initially be to bring Israel back to the Lord. And it's in that context that we have the parable of the lost son. And we sang a song tonight about the parable of the, last, of the, law, of the 99 sheep, and it is in its, on its heels we, we see the Jesus' parable of the lost son. That is, 
that someone, a son, has basically taken his inheritance and he squandered it and then he comes back. And some people have thought, well, it seems as if that parable is about someone who has, who once knew the Lord, backslid, and then came back. But the purpose is no. That lost son is truly someone who has been outside of Christ the entire time. They were like the one lost sheep that eventually repents, trusts in Jesus, and there's rejoicing. Bible even says that the angels in heaven rejoice. So Jesus' initial call, his initial purpose was to restore Israel. It was to call what is later called the remnant. In Romans 9, it says this. It says, is Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, and this would be in Isaiah 10, verse 22. It says, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Only the remnant will be saved. It becomes very clear that God is calling a people to himself, and not everyone is going to respond. Not all of Israel is going to repent. And because of this, Paul and Barnabas, they begin preaching the gospel. And in Acts 13, they're in a city proclaiming it. In Antioch, they're proclaiming the gospel. And the Jews hear it, but when they see Gentiles coming, they're infuriated. And Paul actually quotes verse, verse, the, the end of verse 6 to them. The end of verse 6 says this, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, the very purpose of the Messiah wasn't just for Israel. It was for the entire world. It was to restore not just Israel, but to restore the entire world. You see, we live in a day right now in which the VR goggles that they wear says this, you can be a better version of yourself. You can be a better you. We were watching a movie last night, and I don't mean to knock the movie. It was an okay movie starring Lindsay Lohan. And she basically was this snooty rich girl who didn't do anything. Though maybe when, when her mom was, was alive, she did. But she basically, every, her dad was wealthy, and her dad had her servants and, and hired people to do everything for her. And... She then, of course, falls in love and sees a guy and he is so sacrificing and he really serves and, and loves her and cares about her as opposed to this other guy who was too much into himself. By the end of the movie, it took, what, two days, four days? I'm trying to remember how long the time period. She was a completely different person. Wow! Man, all of us need to get lost in some snowy mountain and meet a guy or a girl and, and we'll be changed too, right? And now, I don't mean to knock this too hard, but that is, a, a lot of times, that is the general hallmark, though this wasn't a hallmark movie, it's the general hallmark type of romance movie where the woman changes the guy, or in this case, the guy changes the girl. And that's how the world views change. You know what? If I just put my mind to it, I can change. I could be a different person completely. And the Bible tells me that, no, you can't. 
You can try. Of course you can try. But do you want to see change? That change has got to start in here. And not just by you being determined. I am just going to, you know, come New Year's Day, I'm going to be a different person. Okay? The Bible says, nope. There is one person and only one person who can do that, and that is this Messiah. That is the servant of the Lord. That's the one who would come, do miracles in the very end. His own would reject him, and he would die on a cross, but it would be like the seed falling into the ground and dying, and it would come to life. He would be raised from the dead so as to reproduce the very thing that God had called him to. That is, to live a life of holiness and call people to follow after God. Jesus would need to be the one to change us. He's the one who's called to restore. As hard as we can try and as much as we want, we will always fail in this endeavor to change. Because we're sin addicts, guys. Apart from Jesus, I'm a sin addict and I'm lost and enslaved to the sin. And only Jesus can break those chains. That is what Isaiah comes and, and, and declares throughout the, throughout the last 26, 27 chapters of Isaiah. Over and over. He is the one who's going to bring restoration. He's the one who's going to bring Israel back. And no, he's not talking about 1948 when Israel became a nation. Actually, the Bible says that God would never cause Israel to stop being a nation. See, Isaiah 48 is talking about the statehood of Israel. They would never cease to be a nation, and they haven't. My point here is that this passage has nothing to do with what happened in 1948. It has everything to do with what began on Pentecost and has been going on throughout history in which God, through Jesus Christ, would bring the people of Israel to himself, but not stop there, but desire to reach the nations. The Bible says that this Messiah would be a light to the nations. I'm just going to have you kill those, these lights here. See, there are three things that light does. Three very important things that light does. Light helps you see to understand clearly. Light helps you see to find your way. And light exposes what is hidden. It helps you see very clearly. And as I'm, I don't mean to shine this in your eyes, sorry. But if, when we turn the light on, and I was not anticipating these bright lights behind me. There's no way for us to kill those. But just imagine that it's pitch, pitch black in here, okay? And we're looking around, and I can begin to see. And with this light, not only do I begin to see clearly in this darkness, but I'm able to find my way. Wait, wait a second. Look what I found here. Wow. I found this M&M here. I'm wondering if there's... Wait a second. Here we go. Hang, hang on, guys. Hang on, guys. Wait, wait. Here we go. Here we go. I got some... Man, this, this flashlight is doing... Look at this. I found another one. Oh my goodness, here's another one. Wow, where is this leading me to? Oh my, wait a second here. It not only does those two things, but it also reveals the hidden things. Someone has been eating M&Ms back, back in the booth here. My goodness. It exposes 
what is hidden. Now, I, I told the I told the, the crew back there that I was going to be doing that, so don't think that they were eating M&Ms back there, though I did say that if they wanted some, they could have some. But anyway, we're not supposed to be eating in this room, right? The truth is that light exposes the darkness in us. John chapter 3 says, people don't come into the light. Who is the light? What did we just learn? Who is the light? Jesus, the servant, the Messiah. He's the light. People don't come into the light for fear that their deeds, their evil deeds, will be exposed because the light reveals what is hidden. Jesus is turning the light on in our generation and people are running from the light. They don't want to be in the light because the light exposes their sin. And if it exposes their sin, it will show them that there is a deep-seated issue in their life. January 1st, every time they put, every time they, they create their resolutions, it is so hard. And for the vast majority of them, they can't walk in them because they are completely unable to apart from the help of Jesus Christ. God created us in our sin. We are, we are broken people in desperate need of reconciliation with the Father. But the truth is, that Jesus is the one who turns the light on. Jesus is the one that when he turns the light on, we're able to see and understand things clearly. That you know what? I am broken. There is a God and I desperately need that God. And I don't even, I don't just need God. I need him to work in here because I can't change myself. I don't care what Hallmark says. I can't change myself. Jesus must change me because I'm spiritually dead and only he can make me spiritually alive and thereby connected now with the God that created me and didn't just create me, but created me with a purpose and only in God can I walk in that purpose. There, only in God, only in Christ can you walk in your purpose. And so God has called us out of this darkness into his light that we would understand who God is and why we would even need him in the first place. So this generation, with wearing its virtual goggles, they cannot see the spiritual realities in this world. They're not only in darkness, but that darkness has given them an alternate reality that they live in. And if we were to show them pictures, if you will, of what God does in his love and his grace and his mercy and his power, they look at it and it's, it's confusing to them. They, they, they can't see it because of the virtual goggles that they're wearing. But God, Paul says, can turn the light on so that they can see the glory of Christ in the gospel. What is his glory? Not just his miracles, but his what? His death and his resurrection. God turns the light on. We get it. So when we're looking at this, can we turn the lights on now? When we're looking at this, we need to realize that this light 
This light that the servant of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, offers the world, casts out the darkness, allows them to see reality as it truly is in our desperate need for God, and he's able to mend what's broken. He's able to restore us truly to God. This is the power. This is what light does. Light allows us to see clearly, and we can understand. It allows us to find our way, and it exposes what is hidden. You have a sheet of paper in front of you there. In the last few remaining minutes that I've got, I want to just read a little bit of this. You've seen this sheet before. And now here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to read through every single one of these. And I've timed how long it's going to take, by the way. So I have plenty of time to do what I want to do, if you're looking at your clock. So what you're going to do, though, is as I read through these, I want you to circle roughly, I'm not going to be legalistic here, I want you to circle 10 of them. 10 of them, the ones you circle, they're the ones that you believe, you know what, I think I can do this. And, and while I'm reading them, I want you to just be communicating with, Lord, is this something that maybe you would want me to do? Is this even a possibility? Is this, what do you think, Lord? And I want you to circle about 10 of them. Now, here's what you're going to do between now and Tuesday evening. You're going to be taking the sheet of paper, which, by the way, when we're done, you're going to fold in half, and you're going to stick in Isaiah 49. That's going to be your marker. Now, some of you, this is going to be tough because you don't bring your Bible. You bring your cell phone to read from. The, okay, that's, that's going to be all right. If you can bring your Bibles, that might be helpful. But the reason why I'm going to have you put it in Isaiah 49 is so that... <coughs> You'll be reminded to read through it every time we open it. And we're going to be going through Isaiah 49 a few more times because we're going to go to the, through the whole chapter. But as we do that, I want you to be reminded to just read through some of this. So between now, right now you're going to circle 10. Between now and Tuesday, I want you to be praying very seriously, Lord, which two or three of these do you want me to really pursue? And, and I want you to really be praying about it and give yourself to it. This basically talks about getting wet. That's what the title is about. Because the truth is, it's really hard to catch fish without getting wet. You have to go into their environment. To reach the world, you have to step into the world. Not being a part of it, you understand what I'm saying. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he wasn't a he, he, was, he, he did not live the lifestyle that they lived. When Jesus was a friend of sinners, when Jesus went to Levi's house, when he mingled with the sinners, when he mingled with the world, his goal was to reach them. And I would venture to say that caution most particularly needs to get, be given to teenagers. Teenagers tend to, and I've worked as a, a youth pastor for seven years before I became a senior pastor. The truth is that generation is the ones tempted the most when they hear this, well, Jesus was a friend of sinners. I need to rub shoulders with the people in the world. And that sounds attractive. And I'm just going to tell you, regardless of what age group, your goal in reaching, your goal in uh, getting your feet wet and going out into the world is not to be like the world but it is to win the world. That was Jesus' mission. He didn't try to see how close he could come to sin and how cool. See, guys, I am just as cool as you guys are. 
And I know some Christians, their goal is to be cool like the world because maybe they can see that Christians can be cool too. I'm sorry, I don't see that as a paradigm for reaching the lost. What's really going to reach the lost is that we live in a way that is radically different than the world. Not like the world, but different from the world. So I'm going to read through this. You're going to circle 10, and then between now and Tuesday, you're going to really be praying, God, what two or three of these do you really want me to focus on? And over the next couple of weeks, I want you to be praying about this, and I want you to really be serious. God, what? And if you want to add some, by all means, add some. But I want us, as we're going through the mission of the Messiah, and his mission was to to shine light, to reach the Gentiles, so that the ends of the earth would come to him? Then what can we do as we're understanding this mission to be a part of that mission? Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, pray every day for opportunity to share the gospel. Go out once a week for lunch with an unbeliever. Start an evangelistic Bible study at work. Start an evangelistic Bible study in your home. Ask a friend to read your testimony and share what they think of it. Make your testimony into a little booklet and pass out to friends and strangers. Write a series of letters or emails to a non-Christian friend. Mention Jesus, your faith, etc. I I actually did this um, not too long ago in which two Jehovah's Witnesses within a few months of each other sent me a letter and trying to reach me and to consider coming visiting their church. And so I responded to them and explained to them why I wouldn't, but that I, I, there's something so crucially different in how we view Jesus. And that is everything when it comes to how I live my life and my eternal destiny, okay? Because if Jesus is God, he has every right to demand of me complete devotion because only God can do that. I'm going to give my complete devotion only to God because that's what worship is. So anyway, memorize a gospel outline and Ephesians 2. Buy or make some funny or creative gospel tracks to pass out. Spend some time each week with a non-Christian friend on a regular basis. Help international students learn English or practice their English with you. You know, May was telling me was it last year or the year before, whichever it was, that she would, uh, I think it was two years ago we had this discussion in which she was a part of reaching out to the international students at her school. And she would, she would do this on a weekly basis, if I'm not mistaken, and try to evangelize them, share Christ with them, look for opportunities to hang out with them. But her mission was to reach these international students at the school she went to. So however you want to see that played out, maybe reaching international students can work for you. Invite international students to your home or church to experience American culture. Invite a non-Christian friend to church, Bible study, or other Christian event once a month. Study apologetics and have the answers for the most frequently asked questions about Jesus and Christianity. Adopt an elderly person who doesn't know Jesus or visit a nursing home regularly. Start or join an evangelistic drama or music group. Ask people 
what they think of Jesus. And can I just say that during the, the time of Christian, excuse me, the time of Christmas, generally between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, great opportunity as people are practicing, you know, the 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 just the customs that they have that maybe they grew up with, and maybe they have a tree, maybe they give out presents, to just ask them, what does Christmas mean to you? They'll probably mention something about family, that's good. But then ask them, to what degree does Jesus play a part in your Christmas celebrations? That's not being pushy. It's just that, just make it your goal to get to know them. To make it your goal to set them up, to them slam them with the right answer, okay? Draw them out, love on them. Maybe even share some of the things that you did growing up. Maybe share with them what you do as a family now and why. But point them to Jesus. And eventually, hopefully, ask them, who do you think Jesus is? Participate in community activities. Drive children to church whose parents don't come yet. Teach vacation Bible school. Have a summer backyard Bible club. Talk about Jesus, not denominations. Now, if you choose that as one of your ten, just realize that that is more of a principle or a pointer than a thing to do, per se, okay? But you can circle it, that's fine. Invite neighbors or friends from work over for a barbecue. That's a great one. Ask a non-Christian friend to help you with a project or to do you a favor. I'm going to just pause and ask, how many of you circled so far? You don't have to tell me, but I just remember we're circling, okay? And, and how many? And, and if you've only circled one, you've got, you're probably going to have to circle the rest. I don't know. Anyway, um, help people move and create, excuse me, and recruit your Bible. Okay, help people move and recruit your Bible study or life group to help, okay? Ask, how can I pray for you? That's a great one, by the way. How can I pray for you? Host a game night, much as our church is doing tonight, and include unbelievers on the guest list. Sit with non-Christian parents at your children's activities and sporting events. Lead an interest group, like guitar playing, scrapbooking, tennis, whatever it might be, and invite both believers and unbelievers to be part of the group. Go shopping together. Well, I didn't hear an amen. That's cool. All right. Go shopping together. Join the PTA or volunteer to coach a soccer team. Pray for more ideas. God will love answering that prayer. So you're going to take this right now. You're going to fold it. You're going to put it in your Bible right there. But we're going to pray. I want to ask, I want you to ask the Lord to give you wisdom. I'm going to be doing the same thing. Wisdom. Help us, God, to sh and, and lead us to those who don't know Christ to maybe restore something in our hearts. Maybe we've done this type of stuff in the past and maybe didn't quite turn out the way you wanted. Well, just maybe find out, God, was there something I can do differently? God's totally open to different ideas. And just ask God, God, what do you want me to, how do you want me to reach this generation? God loves to hear that question on your lips because that is his mission. He came to restore Israel and he came to restore the world. My Bible tells me 
that Israel is experiencing a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles come in and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, all, I'm not sure if he means every single one or if he means a majority or just, wow, when you think about Israel, it seems like everyone is coming to Jesus, okay? But that is going to happen. And this idea of the fullness of the Gentiles, it's not like, I don't agree with most translations that say the full number. It's as if, okay, number 7,697,000,000 just came to Christ. Not going to reach the Gentiles anymore, and it's just now Israel's turn. I don't believe that's what God is going to be doing. But there is going to be this time. It's, it's what he calls the fullness. It's like this revival time that's going to stir up the Gentiles, and so many are coming to Christ. It's that fullness of, of redemption that, that's going to be poured out upon the Gentiles. It's going to stir up the Jews, and they too that hardness of heart is going to be gone and they too will join in that revival. I believe that that is going to be happening. I pray that it happens in my lifetime. And so right now, I want to give myself to whatever I can. And I pray constantly, church, God, show me. I really want to live a life that impacts people. Help me. I want to do it more. So we're going to close in prayer right now. And I just want you to take some time and just say, God, show me my heart. Examine my heart. I want to be a person who's passionate for your kingdom, but I want, I want to give myself to it. I want to see the ends of the earth come to Christ. I want to see my neighbors. I want to see the ends of my neighborhood. Is that as far as you can think instead of on the other side of the world? As far as your neighborhood goes, great. There's a lot of people probably in your neighborhood or your apartment complex pray for them. So Father, we do that. We just ask you right now that you would show us, Lord, what we are to do. Show us the two or three to we're, we're to give ourselves to. We're really to pray about. We're to plan about. Include our spouse in this planning and praying as well. And I just ask you, Father, that we would be about the mission of our Savior. The suffering servant. He suffered not just for me, but for the world. So I'm just asking you, God, use me to that end. Use each of us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.